I'm going to show you some more slides from the Middle East about um, things that we've been talking about, including the sermon on Easter. And then some of the, uh, I'll start with a couple things about that, and then we'll get into Acts and continue on through Paul's sermon in Acts 13 at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness and for the fellowship of the saints. And may our hearts be open to your truth and your word as we study together what you've said in the scriptures. We ask you to give us wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, as I've mentioned, I've been showing some of the slides. I bought a whole bunch of PowerPoint slides that have to do with things in Israel. Last time I taught, remember I mentioned the garden tomb? So there's a picture of it. If you ever go to Israel, it's one of the places they'll take you. They're not claiming to know that this is the empty tomb uh, that was Jesus's, but it illustrates how they would dig into a side of a rock and make a tomb. And so this in, in Israel is called the garden tomb. And it's just an illustration. And if you've been there, it's very touching. They always have somebody good at that spot to tell you about Christ and the resurrection. So, and then um, I mentioned in my Easter sermon about their concern about the body. The Egyptians preserved bodies to the point where they're around a long, long time. Here's a mummified one. Uh, and the caption I have here says, even mummification, this is what the Egyptians did, cannot prevent the effects of decay. This is, this mummy was photographed at, at the Istanbul Archaeological Museum. And the reason I show this slide, because they mentioned decay, that was our theme if you were here when I last taught Sunday school, the claim of the apostle it was focused on the idea of decay. And the message was, thou will not allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. And the claim that Paul made in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch was that David... It couldn't have been about David because David did decay. His tomb was still there. But Messiah was raised from the dead and did not undergo decay. So therefore, David was looking ahead as a prophet and prophet about, prophesied about Jesus. And so the apostles were proving continuity from the old covenant prophecy to the new covenant fulfillment in Christ. What a, what a magnificent thing it is to know and understand the Bible and uh, present it to people. I had the privilege, I was down in Iowa. Thank you for your prayers. I went down to do funeral service, two of them for my father-in-law, who went to be with the Lord. And it was, it was really amazing how well it went. And even the pastor at the church was an evangelical. And we, we really had 
a great service. It was honoring to Diane's dad, and it was a good chance for all of the family to get to hear the gospel, and I got to talk to many, many people. And it's a miracle I have a voice. Thank you for your prayers. Because all the way back, or most of the way back, my grandson was with me, who had heard all of that, and I think it was a very touching name. He's not a Christian. He's a college grad, very brilliant, and he loves to talk philosophy and religion or whatever. We got into a long, long, detailed discussion about what's wrong with mysticism and the objective claims and how the, what kind of claims the Bible actually makes. I was just walking him through from my memory the book of Matthew, the Magi, what that was about, some of the stuff I preached on Easter. Then we went into John, telling about John 1, about the hypostatic union, about the nature of Christ. We went for two hours like that. And I thought, man, it's going to be a miracle if I have a voice by Sunday. That, that was a long day. But I still have my voice, and it was very productive. So thank you for your prayers. God was at work in Iowa, I can tell you that. And by the way, this pastor had visited my father-in-law many times while he was dying, and he's a born-again brother who, who knows Christ, so praise God. Acts 13, 38, 39, continuing Paul's sermon at the synagogue in Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you, and everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified through the law of Moses. Now, here is a very, very important claim that the apostles made, and it was certainly at issue throughout the New Testament as to what exactly is justification, what's the relationship between the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, and the New Covenant, which we've already been talking about, prophesied in Jeremiah. And so the claim of the apostles was that Moses and the prophets and David prophesied accurately about the Messiah who has come and fulfilled those prophecies. He's the one who was raised and did not suffer decay. So he's the holy one David was prophesying about. David decayed, or his body did. And likewise, this issue of forgiveness of sins and justification is front and center. And one of the claims of the New Testament apostles that we need to take very seriously was that the sacrificial system, Temple Judaism, was foreshadowing something that would be similar in the sense that there's blood atonement and sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But it's different because it's once for all. Okay? And so don't forget that. As I've debated different people 
on the internet because that's our for me my my evangelistic outreach is to people that contact us because critical issues commentary gets so many people that find articles many who are not christian so i preach the gospel to everybody that contacts me but this is a big deal once for all forgiveness of sins that's accomplished by the finished work of Christ. That is, to use the Latin term I brought up, I think, last week, sine qua non of biblical Christianity. That's a Latin phrase means without which not. If you don't have once for all decisive purgation, to use William Lane's terminology, you don't have the new covenant. If you have some process that you have to go through, whether it's asceticism, severe, which would be severe treatment of the body, uh, dietary regulations, mystical practices, solitude, silence, sleep deprivation, all these different kind of things in order to try to prove that you're pious and holy and God ought to accept, ought to, ought, ought to accept you. You don't have the new covenant. If you have law keeping in order to try to follow the law of Moses and be a fastidious Sabbath keeper in order to be right, you don't have the new covenant. But if you have once for all a decisive work of grace done by Christ that provides all of these things, Sabbath rest, come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hebrews, that was in Matthew 11. Hebrews makes it very clear. If you do not have Christ, you do not have Sabbath rest. There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. And he who has ceased from his works is resting. And the ones that are doing religious works, serving religious systems, doing it over and over again, Harder, try harder, do more, on and on and on. The author of Hebrews says, you don't have rest. But if you come to Christ, who did it all, once for all, you have entered in to rest. Very interesting. And so I would suggest for all of us, never forget, here's a Greek word, hapax, Uh, Eric and I emphasize that a lot. Once and for all. It's done. Every other religion says do. The new covenant says done. But you have to believe the gospel. So it says, let it be known to you through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed. Now the word for forgiveness in the New Testament, particularly in Luke Acts, is aphasis. And the word is, not only denotes forgiveness, it really literally means release, to be unloosed. So if you don't have forgiveness, what you have is debt. You have a debt, and it's going to be called in. Payment shall be required of all debts. And... Those who are trying to pay off their own debt by good works are going to be left short. 
The day is going to come. The final judgment is going to come. And if they're relying on works, they're going to still be in debt. And they'll be lost. But those who, rather than doing religious works in order to gain favor with God, but instead they believe what's preached by the apostles, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, and they believe that person's debt is paid once for all. And those who believe the blood of Jesus continually cleanses from sin. And the argument in Hebrews was that the temple system could not provide that. And the proof that it could not was they had to keep going back. Year after year, they had to have another day of atonement. And plus all of the other things that were required. And so they worked, 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 but then they still had their sin. They had to go back. They worked, 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 still had their sin. It had to happen again. And so the author of Hebrews said, but Christ died for sins once for all. Peter said, once for all, just for the unjust or to bring us to God. It's appalling to me. So much of evangelical Christianity, if you want to call it that, never preaches on the forgiveness of sins. It's not even in their programs. Where is forgiveness of sins? It's pretty odd. I've seen this happen more than once. When a famous pastor is asked, what do you have in your whole program about forgiveness of sins? Hmm. Hadn't thought about that. I wonder, what, hey, do we have something? Well, I don't, I don't see anything. I'm reading these books. I've been talking about it. I talked about it with my grandson, frankly, that Eric asked me to read a neogram. So I got, I'll have an article coming out. Unbelievably complex, convoluted, confused. Hey, that's three C's. Let's do that. Complex, convoluted, confused. Remind me to put that in my article. <laughs> Trying to find your true self. Salvation, in their way of thinking, is finding your true self. And there's this amalgamation of pop psychology, ancient mysticism, Eastern religion, personality type studies, inner child theory, all thrown together so that you go through this elaborate process, which they say takes years. And by the way, the number one prescription for the, this is in a local Bible college. They're teaching this. It's appalling. But guess what? You could ask the same thing. Maybe, in fact, they pulled the plug today. They don't even want to talk about it. Eric was going to go contend about this. They don't even want to talk about it. Go ahead and tell us, Eric, how this came up. Yeah, it it came up. There was a pro-life speaker that was invited to this particular university, and they said that she was too radical to come. And then when it was, she was invited by an organization called Young Americans for Freedom, and I got to met, meet this young lady who's the founder of it. And what the college did to hide the fact that they're, they want to claim they're still pro-life, 
they started to blame her that the reason they had canceled the pro-life speaker was because she didn't follow proper procedures of the college. Well, it's a lie. I saw the email chain. She did everything they wanted. So what you have is an administration in the college that's teaching, just as Bob said, occultism, mysticism, uh, postmodern epistemology, on and on. It's evil, wicked, pagan, as pagan as pagan could be. This is the same stuff you'd find at Berkeley. And yet they want to claim that they're still a Christian college. So it's very bad. And Bob is going to be exposing one of the practices that they're using in their spiritual formations department called Enneagrams. That's what right. Bob is talking about. It, it took I'm, I'm, I've read two pretty thick, com, complicated books, but I think I got to the bottom of it. But uh, I would be, my heart goes out to the young people who are being sent off to Christian colleges by their parents at a great expense. And when they get there, they get sucked into Eastern occultism and told that it's Christian. And I can see how seductive it is because it's it's like Rick Warren's shape program, only just exponentially multiplied in its intensity. Shape program is just sort of blasé. What is my gift? And you sort of go through this thing. This is even more intense because of the Eastern religion. And the, and the number one thing they say over and over, the main guy is Richard Rohr, who's a ecumenical liberal Catholic. But uh, he's a monk or something. Have you heard of him, Dan, Richard Rohr? Yeah. yeah. And when I mean ecumenical, he's not talking about other Christian groups. He wants to be ecumenical with Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. Um, but they get sucked into this. Silence and solitude are their key practices. And we had a discussion in a truck on the way back, and I said, if you want a program to take a normal person and make them insane, that's the program. Why do they put prisoners in solitary confinement? And it's reported that many go insane in there. Go to Bible college, they tell you, go do that. It's appalling. They don't deserve one dollar from any Christian. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, um, this, we talk about forgiveness of sins. And yes. I think you asked a kind of a rhetorical question a little bit ago. I don't remember exactly the question, but what popped in my mind is that people will do anything except admit that they're sinners. They'll do almost anything else and... And, and religious leaders will will try to sell any other product, but you talk to somebody on the street, try to present the gospel, and then tell them, you know what, we're depraved sinners. That'll end the conversation very quickly. They won't That's, believe it. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's what's wrong with the neogram. It's a denial of the fall. This true self that they always capitalize, they don't admit that the true self is dead Adam. In Adam, all die. And that means alienated from God. The true self, if you find him, is a horrible, wicked sinner. And you'll be shocked. We're, we're soft-pedaling this doctrine of the fall and sin. And if you really know what the true self is like, you'll flee to Christ for forgiveness of sins and conversion and the infilling of the Spirit because what we need is not the true self. 
We need to die to the old man and have new life in Christ so that now we're new creatures. It's all missing. So get this part of it. If the forgiveness of sins is not regularly preached from the pulpit, you're probably going to a really bad church. And so you can tell your friends and relatives that. What do you have on forgiveness of sins? See what the, even if they don't preach it, go ask. What do you have about forgiveness of sins? Um, and then, and, or you might say, if I want forgiveness of sins, how do I find it? Or you go to the priest and do your confession. Then the answer, the question is, does that settle it? Oh, no, you got to keep doing it. Well, what happens if I die before I did it? Well, you better get last rites. But what if the guy doesn't get there in time? Well, then you're in trouble, but your relatives can get you out of purgatory, right? <laughs> well, see, the, then you say, wrong answer. Penalty. Go to the penalty box. You got the wrong answer. I think I'm going to the wrong church. I want to know how I am. Forgiveness, remember, a faces release. Yes, brother. In referring to the end of the verse, which is up there, uh, that you're justified from everything that you could not be justified through the law of Moses. Amen. Your teaching has been perfectly clear on that. But I want to refer to 1 John, the second chapter. It says, by, now by this, which I do believe is the uh, blood atonement, by this may we be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. For whoever says, I have come to know him, but does not obey his commandments is a liar, and such a person, uh, in such a person the truth does not exist. And it goes on. So I'm thinking when we, we read in Scripture the commandments, we automatically think the Ten Commandments. But I'm thinking in this instance, it may not be that way. Could you clarify that a little bit? Okay, yes, I will. Thank you for asking that. Very pertinent question. Because that's a good follow-up. Because if we say we have once for all forgiveness, then someone might say, well, then we can go live for the devil and it's all good. And or I know that's not what you're saying, brother. But then how shall, what does it mean now to live with my sins forgiven. Well, before we go anywhere, we got to decide who defines sin. That's essential. That's baseline. And right now, the culture is wanting to define sin as normal human activity. Okay? And because you can't really repent of it, the answer they prescribe is Marxism and socialism And they say, give all of your allegiance to us and all your power and your money and your decisions, and we'll take over everything and create paradise for you. So you can't fly an airplane, you can't drive a car, you can't heat your house. But that's all sin. So who defines sin? To your point, in the New Testament, Jesus does. We are under the law of Christ. Now we're saying that as we walk in faith, the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. But that walk of faith that has this cleansing is acknowledging that we're living for Christ and the goal is to be pleasing to him. 
says that in the New Testament. So Christ defines the law. So as I've said recently, Eric and I have kind of taken this because if you can simplify things, people remember it. So there, there's God-given law that's transcendent because it came from the Creator who has spoken. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Under the Old Covenant, it came on a mountain, Sinai, through Moses. Excuse me. But under the New Covenant, excuse me, <laughs> you have the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, I was just talking about this in my truck on the way back from Iowa. Um, what happened? Well, God spoke through Moses. The law was given. And they failed and rebelled again and again. They wanted to find somebody to bring them back to Egypt. They wanted bread. The manna wasn't good enough. They wanted something else. John 6, they grumble against Jesus. So, on transfiguration, in, in uh, Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like him, that when he did, you should listen to him. So on a transfiguration, Moses was there representing the law. Elijah was there representing the great prophets of Israel. And they disappeared and only Jesus alone was left. And they saw a little transfiguration and saw that he's the glorified son. And a voice from heaven speaks, and it's God, and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So it implies that now, rather than the law of Moses and the prophets, we have Christ and the apostles. And they speak for God. So that's what's binding. So if someone's sins are forgiven and they're a new creature in Christ, they're not saying, well, I can go live lawlessly. Remember what John said? Uh, Sin is lawlessness. So we're under the law of Christ. And we want to please him. We live to please him. When we fail, we don't have to do penance. We don't have to give away a bunch of money to pay it off. We don't have to do a series of endless and meaningless repetitions because that didn't please God anyhow. We have to go back to the throne of grace and just remember how is any sin ever gone? What can take away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So if you ask the pastor, how do I find forgiveness? If he doesn't know anything about the blood atonement, He shouldn't be in the pulpit. He should go get a different job. Because he doesn't have anything that's going to do anybody any good. And sadly, that's most of the churches in America. And it's not even complicated. The blood of Jesus, pretty basic. Yes, Adam. Yeah, we we covered Deuteronomy 18 on on Wednesday night with some depth. But just the one thing I'll point out to reinforce what you're saying is that Sometimes I think it's not fully appreciated uh, what God says on the mountain. He doesn't say, this is my beloved prophet, listen to him. Yeah, yeah. He says, this is my beloved son, yeah. listen to him. 
Uh, and Deuteronomy 18 didn't call for, I, I think God raised up from generation to generation a prophet as he willed, whether it was Samuel or Jeremiah throughout the ages. Uh, and Jesus certainly fills the office of a prophet, but Deuteronomy 18 didn't call for the raising up of a son. Uh, now there's both continuity and, from and discontinuity. Samuel. And so as you read, read like in Hebrews, uh, you see that Moses was faithful in his house as a servant, but Jesus is faithful yes. as a son, as the builder of the house is greater than like the house itself. Amen. And we are his house, uh, and says the builder is God. And so there's both continuity and discontinuity uh, there. And Jesus, he fulfilled Moses and the prophets. Uh, it's still scripture, still valuable uh, and profitable for teaching. Well, he's the uh, lawgiver of the new covenant. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And... Um, so the sonship so part comes not, from David. He's not just a new Moses, but oh, no, he's, that's, he's that's far greater. All, far, right? far greater. David prophesied about the son. You're my, and then, didn't we saw that? We were talking about decay, right? So all of that, that's true. He's, yeah. he's, he's prophet, priest, and king. He's and the judge. unique son, the only begotten, John 1. So we need a full-blown, rigorous doctrine of Christ. Yeah. So that's, that's the answer. The law of Christ defines how we live. And if we fall short, the blood is cleansing us, and we ask God for grace to get back on track. So let's look at some of this. Um, Luke, excuse me, Acts 13, 38, 39, forgiveness of sins his release, and then, um, I wonder why I didn't put those into my notes. Okay, Luke 177, uh, let's just start, Eric, look up Luke 177, Brian, uh, Luke 3.3, 3. and then Dan, Luke 4.18, and then uh, Steve Holweger, uh, if, you, if you can do it. Um, 2447, Luke 2447. Remember, remember there's two volume work going on here. Okay, Eric. I'll just back up one verse. It says, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation. This is verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Yeah, so there is announced at the very beginning of Luke, forgiveness of sins. Luke 3.3. 3. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I think that was probably John the Baptist, right? So forgiveness of sins, or release from sins, is throughout Luke-Acts. Uh, 4.18 was Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Yeah, in that translation, the term liberty is a translation of aphasis, which means release. So the same word in the Greek is used there. Okay, 2447. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, 
to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Okay, so throughout Luke, there is John the Baptist, and then Jesus, and then the Great Commission, talking about forgiveness of sins, a faces, release. Now, we'll see that this actually happened. Uh, Norm, could you look up Acts 2.38? And Ryan Amundsen, Luke, uh, Acts 5.31. I won't give you all of them right now, but let's show that Luke Acts is about forgiveness of sins. Go ahead. Okay, Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right. So now we see both a link back to John the Baptist with baptism and forgiveness mentioned, and now under the into into Acts, you have baptism and forgiveness. Now, baptism, by the way, let me explain that. It signifies death, burial, and resurrection. It it signifies the roots of it are in the Old Covenant when they came out of Egypt. Paul references that. They're baptized into Moses in the sea. So they go down into the water. They come out on the other side, liberated from Egypt, the sea closes. And I, I've often thought there's some irony there. It basically shows the futility of going back. How many of you know, if you're going to backslide, God's not going to open the sea to let you go back easily. You said you were baptized. Remember when Paul used that to exhort the church? Weren't you baptized? Were you? And, and, well, yeah. Well, what happened? What, did, what, what, what was going on there? And it's pricking our conscience. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be dead to sin. Why am I living this way? And if somebody ends up, really wasn't converted, but they were yet baptized like Simon the Sorcerer, Peter just called him a son of perdition. See, the thing is, not that Christians are sinless, but we do acknowledge the law of Christ as binding on our lives. The unconverted won't say this. This is their motto. I will not have this man rule over me. And so they say, I'm going to go my own way. Baptized or not, they're lost. Okay, uh, where are we now? Ryan. Acts 5.31. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So there's forgiveness. So John the Baptist, Christ, and the apostles all preach forgiveness of sins. Eric, this is one of my favorites, so I'm going to ask you to do it. Acts 26.18. And feel free to comment about that verse. Oh, yeah, I love this. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. There's the release. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Wow, there's a lot there. Yeah, now just think about darkness to light. Yeah, the turning. And the turning, by the way, is synonymous with repentance. Yeah, there's repentance right there. And I love it, the sanctified too by faith in me, that once and for all being set apart in Christ, 
and all of a, as a result of the work of God. That's a very good point. Yeah. I was confused about this for a long time. And if we are careful in our acts of Jesus, we'll see that sanctification is by faith as well. A lot of evangelicals think salvation is by faith through grace, but sanctification is by works. And uh, that's not what the Bible's saying. You know, Bob, you and I have done a lot of radio about that. And one of the verses Bob and I use to show that, that sanctification is by faith just as justification is, is in Galatians 3.3, 3, where Paul says, How is it that you who began by the Spirit, and by the way, they received the Spirit by faith, that's one verse earlier. He says, how is it that you who received the Spirit are now trying to be perfected by the flesh? And so the idea is if you are justified by faith, you don't go to sanctification as if it were by works. That's the problem with all of these practices that are being injected as sanctification practices in the church. They're not being sanctified by faith. It's going to be by human works, never ordained by Christ. So Christ is never even Lord. Where did Christ ordain labyrinth walking? or contemplative prayer, or centering prayer. Well, he didn't ordain that, so what is there to believe? Jesus never gave the command. There's no promise to believe. It's not accessible for all. So they're trying to be sanctified by their works. They're doing exactly what Paul warned about in Galatians 3.3. 3. Right. How is that you who began by the Spirit are now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Bob and I have been trying to show that sanctification is also by faith. By faith, we believe in the promises. Therefore, we live for those things rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Yeah. The battle to obey is the battle to believe. If you don't believe, you won't obey. If yeah. you believe, you obey. That's the key. Uh, absolutely. The, and, I, and I challenge people about that. You wouldn't believe, the, especially the younger generation, they're so attracted to the mystical, magical, mystical, whatever, and the self-discovery and all this kind of stuff. See. And I, I was the, my my grandson. We had that long conversation about all of these things, and I was saying, "There's no hyper pious person that's more pleasing to God." That guy in church history, Simon Stylites, spent years up on a pole, living on a pole, trying to be away from everybody else. Excuse me. I got to find that and take it out. Uh, but God didn't command it. How can you be sanctified by some work that you decided you wanted to do that God didn't ordain? And accessible is so important. That's a category, just thinking about all the debates I've had over the decades, I decided that had to be said. The means of grace, and this is right out of 1 Corinthians, you can't call something a means of grace some people couldn't even do no matter what. It doesn't even apply to them. How many people can take an oath of celibacy, an oath of poverty, an oath of obedience, and go join a monastery? This is stuff this enneagram is extolling. And go live somewhere basically doing nothing in silence and solitude. As one of my teachers in Bible college said, Anybody's holiness that's defined so that somebody else's unholiness is necessary to make it work is false. 
And his point was, the guy up on a pole had to have a bunch of people gathering food and uh, wading through his human waste, sorry, but that's, that's what the teacher said in Bible college, to get food up to that joker, he called him. I'm the holy one. I'm up here on a pole. Look at me. Look how holy I am. And all these scurrying around hoi polloi underneath to make his life possible. It's the same way with these monasteries. They're leeches off of everybody else who's full of guilt and think that God doesn't care about them and they feel like they haven't done enough. And they think that that guy in the monastery or that nun or whatever must be high and holy and pious and God's happy. So I'll give my money or I'll, I'll work and I'll feed them and I'll do all these things. And I, I love my teacher. Ray Levang was his name. He said, those are the holy Christians, the ones that do the giving and caring because they want to Please, God, these people are bogus. But accessibility means what God has provided for our salvation is a free gift. Means of grace are what he's provided for our sanctification. And if it isn't by grace through faith and it isn't accessible to all Christians, it's, it's not a, a means of grace. The Lord's Supper, that's why Paul was so adamant about the Lord's Supper when they were keeping people out based on their economic status. They were refusing means of grace to people that God had saved and providing it for some elite ones. And Paul said that they were eating and drinking damnation unto themselves. Wow. There's where accessibility is. So I'm reading these books. This is, most people would just give up trying to do this. Dear ones, don't give up. What God has provided for every one of us is accessible, is designed for sinners saved by grace, is provided by Christ, and it reminds us of what God did for us Remember the Lord's death and what his promises are until he comes. And people say, oh, well, that's that's it. Yep. You don't have to be like the prophets of Baal and cut yourself. Actually, I think Brian actually had his hand up a minute ago. I don't know. Brian, are you or did you forget what you were going to say? No, I've got it right (laughs) here. I wanted to. This is uh, this is Hebrews uh, 4, 8. And uh, it's talking about how it's making a comparison to uh, uh, keep the mic close. It's it's making a comparison to uh, the Sabbath rest of uh, Go ahead. creation. Good, and good it's uh, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Right. The only way we rest from our religious works is by coming to Christ in faith. Yes. You had mentioned Richard Rohr earlier. Yes. Related. Well, I just, um, he has a website. um, um, And I'm just going to read real quickly a quote from him. Um, He says, Jesus and Christ are not exactly the same. 
In the early Christian era, only a few Eastern fathers, such as Origen of Alexandria and Maximus the Confessor, noticed that the Christ was clearly historically older, larger, and different than Jesus himself. They mystically saw that Jesus is the union of human and divine in space and time. Christ is the eternal union of matter and spirit from the beginning of time. So I'd say Mr. Rohr has a false Christ. And see, that's, by the way, in this enneagram, when you finish this journey to find the true self, he says, then you find God. So we're all part of the Christ. Yes. Brian, can you tell us what that verse was that you read? It was Hebrews. Can you share those? Hebrews 4 8. 4 8. 4 8. 4 8 through 12. Thank you. Okay. There's another hand back there. I was was wondering if you could tell us, talking about accessibility, even under the Old Covenant, which uh, Paul reapplies, uh, he talks about that he, he wasn't. He wasn't calling for them to uh, ascend to heaven or to descend to uh, Sheol. Yeah, I mean, they, they yeah. had atonement. They didn't have once-for-all perfecting sacrifice. So there was something still future. God had to deal with sins once for all. Uh, there were cir- circumcision in the heart, but he wasn't asking them to do some great, yeah. uh, great deed. He had brought them out of Egypt uh, and called them to uh, faith in himself. You, you spoke about that. That's in Romans you? 10. Yeah, it's in Romans 10. And we, when we talk about the doctrine of election, which Eric's going to be covering when he does Sunday school, we can't forget Romans 10. One thing never changes. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the point there. Okay. And that's exactly what the thief on the cross did. He did. He was not able to do any good works up on the cross. The world decided he was not fit to live, but um, Jesus accepted him when he put his faith in him. And his expression of faith was simply, he believed what Christ claimed, which is that he would have a kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believed that he would, even though he's dying. A lot of people didn't believe that. Hey, hey, Bob, you know, it's interesting. You often mention when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't it interesting, the means of grace that Christ gives, they're easy in the sense that they're accessible. But look at the means of grace that the pagans have, going up on this pole, going into solitude, zapping your body of, of, you know, the marble, trying to zap it from body heat so you suffer. And you think about the world even, think about the left. You can't have a Slurpee. You can't heat your house. You can't burn that fossil fuel. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. And yet they don't want to be under Christ because why? They don't want to be governed by that man. But his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I'd rather be governed by Christ where I can eat a Slurpee or drink a Slurpee. Depending how thick they are, you either eat or drink it. (laughs) Use a straw, right? I can heat my house. I can drive my car. Isn't it wonderful being a believer? Being a believer leads to freedom. We have liberty. We have liberty. Amen. And we have a new heavens and a new earth coming. Exactly. Yes, Luann. Yeah, I was just kind of ties in um, with what Eric was saying and stuff. But when we think of uh, Psalm two, and it's verse seven, 
and it says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. And if we move on down to the bottom, it says in verse 12, pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may you ignite at any moment. And then it finishes, all who take refuge in him are happy. Take refuge in Christ. Hallelujah. Flee to Christ. Trust in Christ. I love all those. In preparation for my father-in-law's funeral, we did. There was a audio he he requested that would. It was kind of a tearjerker. It was, but the person on the audio was George Younts. He's now with the Lord, but he was a old-time gospel quartet singer for the Cathedral Quartet. And so I got out some of those old songs. I at one time and probably off a cassette. I'd made MP3 so my father-in-law could listen to the music he liked when as he was older. But it was interesting listening to those old gospel quartet songs from the 60s and 70s. Evangelicalism at that time was totally focused on forgiveness of sins, blood atonement, future in heaven. They used analogies, you know, which music, music is creative that way. One of them was standing by the river was using an analogy of going on over to heaven, promised land. And uh, we were talking about that a little bit. What happened? What happened that we got so sophisticated in American evangelicalism that all of that stuff is just foolish and quaint and beneath us, and we've got to have Hollywood-type people who are superstars, and we've got to fit in with the culture, and right now that means being mystical, and contemplative. What are they contemplating? I, can't, I spend my whole time contemplating because I'm, I can't exhaust the Bible in a lifetime. And I'm sitting here studying and learning, but that's not what they're contemplating. In him, let's get this finished, everyone who believes in him is justified Justification means being right with God, and it describes our status. Made righteous, made holy, made just by faith. And this includes everything you could not be justified through the law of Moses. So there's something unique. Yes. There's something unique about justification by faith. Uh, Well, the only thing I was going to add is the fact that there's an unbalance on preaching nowadays. There's an emphasis on the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. And because of that, it's really completely unbalanced. So you don't see the fact that man is a sinner, man needs to repent, and uh, man needs to acknowledge his sin. Right. It's good. good. Thank you, brother. That's a good comment. Interestingly, one of the verses that you see all the time is John 3.16, and which is good. We believe in the love of God. But just read of all, all of John 3, and a lot of those people would check out. Because it talks about the wrath of Biden. The one who doesn't believe the wrath of God abides on. 
Well, then we don't get around to that one because our, we did a marketing survey and we found out that people who might be seekers who would go to church don't like to hear about wrath. Well, it's certainly not a popular topic, but the point of wrath isn't just to be morbid. It's to point out the glory of justification. Because if you don't have a full-blown doctrine of God's justice and the future judgment and the reality of God's wrath against sin, you'll never appreciate justification. What are we saved from? What are we being told? I wrote, my first book was about this purpose driven. Saved from a lack of purpose. My life doesn't have purpose. So if you go through this program, you'll have purpose, which you didn't have before. Well, that's an inadequate salvation because it's an inadequate definition of what's wrong. It's not that we're, there are people that don't know God who are very happy with whatever purpose they've chosen for their life. But our salvation is from God's wrath. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, just to summarize this, we're on slide one, of course, which is great. We're, we're really moving along. But, well, no, this is good, though. This is good because, you know what, I think what people have illustrated here is how Scripture proves Scripture. And then also, uh, in that vein, uh, you know, we've got forgiveness. We, you know, we're justified and sanctified. We're cleansed. But then Eric uh, Dauma pointed out a few weeks ago in a Sunday school about transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's, yeah. that's part of it. But, but the first step is that awful thing people don't want to do is admit that they're depraved sinners and that they have to repent they need and believe the atonement. gospel. But we, we, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And this is actually my question. The way that that happens is once I become a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells me, and I look at the Word of God, and that is illuminated for me, and I understand the law of Christ, I, and, and we're changed right. by, by the working of the Holy Spirit along with the Word of God. In John 17, Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. And we need to build a biblical worldview, and that is not... I'm telling you, I've debated people who have contacted us on the Internet who say they're Christians who will not acknowledge even a basic biblical worldview. I say things like, that I'm coming to come to Peter, I say things like this. I believe that history is linear. It's not cyclical like the Buddhists or whatever. You're not recycled. It begins with creation. And it's headed toward judgment. Okay? And then there's the new order of things described in the Bible. So let's start with that. Would you ascribe to your own beliefs that view of history, that it begins with creation and is headed toward judgment? They don't want to do that. Because they're admitting that God is going to judge the world. Emergence says... This is how they talk about everything. We're uncomfortable with any doctrine that would imply judgment of the earth as we know it. They want paradise on earth. Yes, Peter. So just to parrot what Eric and Eric Squared said, 
Thank, thank goodness we don't have to rely on ourselves. Amen. Self is not a very good source. Bob, I just wanted to bring up one point that you were talking about, you know, the serving and, and how we don't want to talk about forgiveness of sins. Well, going back to Acts 5, which you were talking about earlier, and back in, in verse 27, it says, when they brought the apostles before the council and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, now you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Well, survey says they don't want to hear about forgiveness of sins. But what do Peter and the apostles say? But Peter, and this is verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things and also in the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Good one. Good reading. Exactly. When they were told they couldn't do it, okay, we're going to do it right now. You're gonna pre- you can't do that. No, I'm going to do it. Um, I, I, you really... What a great thing to talk about. Why would any uh, group be Christian and run away from what makes us different from all the other world religions? If we give up the uniqueness of Christ and the gospel, then all we've got is, well, you should be religious, and we have a version of that for you. Well, what, what are you going to say to somebody which just says, I'm not going to be religious. I'm just going to go by science. Well, then you don't have any reason to tell them anything. Because there's no real need if there's no wrath of God to flee from. I have to say something that was a great blessing to me. I went down to speak at my father-in-law's funeral. And it was in a Methodist church which, as you know, has many, many liberal churches. But when we got there, we found out this pastor was different. He believed the gospel. And he preached Christ. And he'd been exemplary in how he handled visiting my father-in-law and honoring Christ. And I want to do a call out to the veterans. I did in my sermons down there. We had an honor guard, and my father-in-law was a World War II vet. The most touching thing, they saw down in Iowa, everybody was really old in the honor guard. Every one of them had trouble even standing. It was difficult for them to shoot the rifles for the honor salute. And they had the folded flag. The man who brought the flag to hand to my mother-in-law, as they do, honoring the service of Bob Hamilton, was so old and so frail. And he must have been like the commander of the Legion Post. He had the folded flag, and he could only walk like three inches at a time on even ground. And he was, everybody kept thinking he was going to go down. And then he got to the, the green astroturf, 
by the coffin several times almost went down. Everybody just knew not to do anything. Because if he only did one thing, he was going to get that flag to that widow. And he had to be well in his 90s. And he got there and he did it. And afterwards, I was talking to the relatives. Everybody said the most impressive thing they saw was that man at the very, very end of his life who could hardly even walk was going to make sure that flag didn't go down with him and hit the ground and handed it to Kathy. And uh, I was, uh, thank you for your prayers. It's amazing what God did in Iowa. And I was honored to be even part of it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the fellowship of the saints. And thank you that you do care about us and you've offered forgiveness of sins. May we always flee to you in your compassionate arms in our time of need. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.